You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. Well, unfortunately, today starts off similar to yesterday. Um, I guess I, I must have just missed it because um, apparently it was within hours of the report about uh, Jalen yesterday passing away. Tony Siragusa, the, um, I would say, one of the most famous Baltimore Ravens. I mean, you got Ray Lewis, you got you know probably a handful of other people, but Tony Siragusa is way up there. Got a little bit about Tony here. Uh, this is from CBSSports.com. One of the biggest personalities in the history of the NFL, Tony Siragusa died on Wednesday at age 55. The former defensive tackle spent 12 years in the NFL and ended up winning a Super Bowl ring uh, in 2000 with the Ravens. Siragusa's NFL career said almost didn't happen because he tore his ACL coming out of college. Says he didn't get drafted and almost didn't even get signed. He only got a job... Um, by selling himself as a backup long snapper for the Colts. Siragusa just got a $1,000 signing bonus with his first contract. He ended up spending seven years with the Colts before moving on to uh, the Ravens in 1997, spent five years with them, and was a part of that 2000 Ravens defense, which is one of the best in NFL history. I mean, it's not even really debatable. It's incredible. He also played a big part in helping guys like Ray Lewis, you know, by, by being that big nose tackle, you know, taking up space in the middle, allowing the guys behind him to, to operate freely. It says the 2000 Ravens defense surrendered just 165 points and 970 rushing yards, which is still an NFL record for a 16-game season. That really is incredible. 970 yards in 16 games. Teams average 60 yards against them. Maybe even more impressively is 165 points, which pretty easy math divided by 16 is about 10 points a game that can't even be right can it (laughs) how is that possible that defense pitched four shutouts four of them my goodness dallas cowboys cleveland browns cincinnati Bengals, pittsburgh steelers it's funny that they did it once each to each of their rivals steelers Bengals, browns Two games, or three games of only three points. One, two, three, four games of only seven points. One of only nine. Three games at ten points. The only game they gave up kind of a bunch of points, and they still ended up winning. They gave up 36 points to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Otherwise, the most amount of points given up was 23. Only three games over, or two games over 20. Three games at 20 or more. Unbelievable defense. Went on to say that uh, he... Still had a pretty illustrious career after his football career. Um, it says, from 2003 to 2015, Siragusa worked for Fox Sports covering the NFL. I remember he was a, like an end zone reporter, kind of like a sideline reporter, but I think he was always on the end zone for some reason. 
It says he also took several uh, acting roles, including The Sopranos and 25th Hour. I'll have to look that up. I've seen The Sopranos several times. I don't remember him being in there. Oh, that's why. It was a very small role. He was a bouncer. He had a couple words, but I can't repeat them. Anyways, very sad to hear about Mr. Tony Siragusa, and uh, obviously very sad for his friends and family. In other news, can't really call it other NFL news, but Arch Manning, the uh, nephew of Peyton and Eli Manning, decided to go to the University of Texas. Texas is absolutely crushing it lately. The only reason I want to keep up on at least major news like this is because obviously this is what makes the NFL, right? There is no NFL if there isn't college. It all just filters right into the NFL, 100%. And that includes information like where the good teams are. We just talked yesterday about Georgia and all that stuff. And the question for me is, is it specifically Georgia? Or does the Packers just like guys from well-established programs? Josh Myers came from Ohio State, and specifically Ohio State's offensive line. If you take an offensive lineman from Ohio State, you get a certain kind of offensive lineman. If you take a defensive tackle from Georgia, you get a certain kind of defensive tackle. So, And these things can change, which is kind of part of the, the, the equation. Like I said, you know, if, if Alabama becomes the defensive powerhouse, are the Packers more likely to take someone from Georgia or Alabama? If that, I mean, again, not that Georgia is going to completely fall off, but let's say hypothetically they did. They're running the same scheme. They have the same kind of, you know, discipline in terms of how they program and and how they train guys to be professionals and all that kind of stuff. All that stays the same. But they're not a championship team anymore. Let's say they're not even necessarily very good anymore. But they're still a star. And then you compare that to a star on, let's just say, Alabama or Texas. And I understand this isn't, you know, they, they take guys from programs that are not necessarily the best in the world. But I'm just saying philosophically, when, when you look at why they like guys from Georgia. And again, I think with this NIL stuff, you're going to see some shifting in terms of who some of the powerhouses are. Maybe not. If some of the big programs can just really quickly adjust and adapt, then, then they'll survive. But I just have a hard time believing that, especially some of these bigger market teams that aren't necessarily near the top, you know, I'm looking at Los Angeles, for example, these teams aren't going to see a, a massive boon. And by the way, while we're on the subject, I've heard other people say that that isn't very likely because people want to get paid in the in the pros, not just take a couple million now. First of all, that's silly. I was I was looking through it. It says Arch Manning. There's a there's a site that tracks these things. They have an NIL valuation, what your expected value is as an NIL player at like three some odd million dollars. First of all, you're basically set for life with that. $3 million at, what, 18 years old? You can get hurt in college. There's no guarantee you're going to the NFL. And secondarily, it's silly to think that because you go to Texas or UCLA that you're not going to get drafted. If you are one of the premier players in football that is valued in the millions, you don't have to go to Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State to be seen by the NFL. That doesn't make any sense. You can go play for a garbage football team, make millions of dollars, be a superstar on that team and the NFL is like that guy's a superstar we're going to grab him so I just don't really buy it I think the NIL thing is going to attract a lot of players some some won't because they think that's a thing but I think a lot will and it'll slowly start to filter over and then when you have enough stars over there then suddenly it doesn't make a difference anymore teams like UCLA are loaded with players that are like heck yeah I'm taking the money and then it's not even an issue because they're a good football team and then players start to go there because of the money slash it's also a good football team now So it'll take a little time, but it's going to happen eventually. But anyways, 
Texas seems to be absolutely crushing it right now as far as recruitment. And some of that has to do with the head coach. I think Arch Manning, supposedly that has a lot to do with it. But for a lot of different reasons, uh, Texas college teams are, um, you know, Texas, Texas A&M, they're seeing a boon. But um, he is sort of the, the, the big name. Number one overall recruit, made a decision, kind of big news. And there's still a slight chance he could end up being a Packer. If you look at the timeline, say Rodgers plays another year, two years, and then the third year, Jordan or somebody else takes over and we're super horrible and uh, we get to draft them. I don't know, that's kind of a stretch, but I'm just saying. Trying to make it somehow Packers related. Speaking of college football, Ohio State University has trademarked the word the or the I mean, I get it, but it's one of those things where if you just want everybody to hate you, this is a good way to do it. I remember there was a, I think it was a, sort of like a Kitchen Nightmares thing. It might have been Kitchen Nightmares, but a Gordon Ramsay show. And there was this woman that opened up a restaurant somewhere in the South. I don't even necessarily think she was from the South, which made it worse. But she tried to trademark Hun, as in the very popular Southern phrase, H-O-N, Hun, short for honey, that everybody in the South says all the time and she tried to trade or maybe even did I don't I think she did trademark hun and then started selling the word and everything else I think she might have even taken legal action on people that put hun on stuff bottom line is everybody hated her like with a passion you don't get to just take words for yourself common words and say sorry nobody else is allowed to use this word to sell stuff like are you out of your mind but somehow this was approved and they were allowed to trademark V and I think they're co-trademark owners with somebody else and they're only allowed to use it in some sports thing whatever I don't know all I know is it's stupid and this is generally not a very popular thing to do if you want people to not hate you I'm sure Ohio State fans don't mind but everybody that is not an Ohio State fan is looking at Ohio State and saying you guys are a bunch of well whatever it's pretty stupid I was reading an article here uh, about that from the New York Times. It says, Many universities are fiercely protective of their trademarks, and Ohio State is no different. The trademark and licensing program earns the university an average of more than $12.5 million each year. That's absolutely ridiculous. Now that you've trademarked the word the, that number is going to go through the roof. It's kind of, whatever, stupid. Anyways, final NFL note that's kind of NFL slash Packers, but not really. Article here by Heavy.com, which is strictly a clickbait website. But again, sometimes it kind of gets the gears moving. Packers named likely landing spot for top NFL pass rusher. Now, technically it's not his fault for being clickbaity because it is it is just information. Uh, it goes on to say the Green Bay Packers have been named among the favorites to deal from one of the NFL's most fearsome pass rushers. That's an exaggeration. Despite already boasting a championship-level defense. Bears edge rusher edge defender Robert Quinn chose to skip mandatory minicamp earlier this month, which has further fueled speculation that he could be on the way out of Chicago. Fox bet last week laid out odds for Quinn's destination should the Bears general manager poll decide to let uh, it's time for a change. And while it's highly unusual for teams to trade for Pro Bowl caliber within their own division, the gambling website listed the Packers as the second most likely destination. According to Fox Bet, the favorites to land Quinn as of June 18th were Dallas Cowboys plus 250, followed by the Packers at plus 300. So, again, it's kind of Packers news, but not really. I don't know why the Packers are listed so high. The, the only reason the Pack, or the only way the Packers would ever acquire Robert Quinn would be if the Bears decided to cut Robert Quinn. And I would say that's pretty unlikely 
He signed a five-year contract with the Chicago Bears. Now, granted, if Robert Quinn just decides he's not playing, then it's it's always possible despite the five-year contract. But it still just seems pretty unlikely. The Bears would end up saving $4 million, so it's not impossible. Obviously, it's $4 million additional this year plus more next year. And, you know, the, the GM, as he is right now, did not bring in Robert Quinn. It wasn't his decision. It would allow him more flexibility for next year to have more money to be able to operate the way in which he wants. Um, plus, if it is a trade, you can get some draft capital, which would help you, which isn't the worst possible thing. However, Robert Quinn is one of the best players on that team, you know, and, and that's not even with all the fluff about him being one of the premier pass rushers and all that nonsense, which isn't true. Basically, Robert Quinn had a billion sacks last year, although his pass rush grades and his pass rush productivity and all that stuff wasn't necessarily all that high. His sacks were just through the roof, which as I've said is not super sustainable, especially for a guy that doesn't really have a track record of doing things like that. But there's two really big notes here. Number one, Robert Quinn might be out as a Chicago Bear. I don't think that's going to happen, but um, according to this report, he was expected, according to the head coach, to be at camp. And actually, I was wrong. It must be because it's post-June 1. I thought the websites would have updated that, but I guess not. The cap space would be, according to um, Brad Spielberg, $12.9 million in cap space. Another article here from Bears Wire says that uh, Rappaport noted that Quinn is training on his own away from the team. Quinn skipped the entirety of the voluntary portion of Chicago's offseason program. Head coach Matt Eberflus previously said he expected Quinn, along with Al-Kahin Muhammad, to be present at mandatory minicamp. Goes on to say there has been speculation about Quinn's future with the Bears this offseason, including a report that, quote, Quinn wants out of Chicago, end quote. It says the Bears have been um, insistent they are not trading whenever teams call, which makes sense because, again, I, I do think they need him. With his flexibility as an outside linebacker slash defensive end, he's played stand-up and hand-down a lot, changing um, schemes. He would, I, I think he's one of the more valuable pieces on this team, so it doesn't make a ton of sense. But again... If you got a guy that's refusing to come and does not want to play, and you can save about $13 million by moving him, and you can probably trade him for some draft capital, um, it's not exactly impossible. You're going to be horrible, but you were going to be horrible anyways. Anyways, the, the other side of that coin is, even if we assume there's no way the Packers are going to end up with the guy, again, pending a, a cut of some kind, but he's probably still going to want too much money. The other thing to realize is that it's not impossible for the Packers to make a move. It's still entirely possible that the Packers end up going out and getting somebody, right? I mean, we, we made in-season moves to, to acquire pass rushers. It's very early in the process. We still have cut-down days, which means a lot of guys are going to end up getting cut. Some of those guys are going to be kind of surprise cuts, and the Packers are going to be able to look at some of them. And that's on top of guys that are already out there. Jason Pierre-Paul, Anthony Barr technically could be tried outside, which is something that I think everybody's been wanting to see at some point. He's still available. Carl Nassib, Carlos Dunlap, Takaris McKinley's only 26, hasn't really proved much, but it's a thing. Derek Wolf, etc., etc. So uh, Ryan Kerrigan is out there. So not the, the biggest news in the world, but a, a worthwhile reminder because, again, I think all of us, including myself, kind of get caught up in this is the way it is. Right. Even yesterday, talking about some of the needs for the future, you look at edge rusher. Granted, if we bring somebody in, it's probably a short-term thing anyway, so it's still going to be a need. But again, the assumptions are always based on what we know today. And I actually want to dovetail that into uh, something else I saw, talking about the Packers' salary cap and the issues within the salary cap in the future. 
Bill Huber wrote up an article on it, uh, basically covering a Brad Spielberg article via PFF, just kind of spelling out the different uh, situations for each team. Bottom line is it's not great, and they rank the Packers 28th overall, etc., etc. I I don't want to rehash this. I've kind of already talked about this a bunch of times, but I, I just want to put in the one caveat. I'm not saying that the Packers salary cap isn't real. I'm not saying any of that. But again, it's all based on assumptions that everything that is, is what it will always be. All of these numbers are based on everything staying the exact same way that it is, right? If you go over to spot track or over the cap and just change the year, it'll give you a salary cap number. And I'm not saying Spielberg didn't do a little bit more analysis than that. And granted, it, it doesn't change all that much because everybody can make similar moves, etc., 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 but whatever. But the point is... The Packers right now probably have a different number than what Track has because they don't look at those and assume that they're going to stay exactly as they are. In other words, every single contract is going to play out as it's spelled out in the contract today. The Packers are looking at some of these contracts with 90% certainty that it's going to change at this point. Right? The Packers' salary cap changes next year if we decide to move on from Aaron Jones. Now, that's still a bad situation for the salary cap, but it's a different situation than it looks like today. In fact, whether we keep him or move on from him, the contract will be changed and how that contract is changed. And granted, we're just talking about pushing out money, which is more negative, but it still changes the dynamic of how things are. And then the question is, how does that get handled in the future? If we do keep him and we push out money, it still doesn't mean every single dollar of that is going to be sent to Aaron Jones. So it's not so much a a static number, it's more of a range. And maybe this is what he did. He, He kind of ranged it out, which would be a massive amount of work. I don't know. But it not only could get better, it could get worse. We could further tweak contracts, we could add players. But again, I, I just want to bring that level of clarification. When you look at this and say that the Packers are have the 28th best future cap situation, first of all, it's not super surprising. We've, we've added a massive amount of players and then have done um, a lot of future borrowing to be able to keep these players, which a lot of that does have to be paid at some point. You know, not all of it does, which is kind of the part that I'm talking about. There are some, there is some flexibility, but not everything is static. Not everything is as you look at it today. You can again, you can look into the future and say this is how much money we have. You can look today and say this is how much money we have. But again, the Packers may have a different number because they know of things that are probably going to happen. The Aaron Rodgers one is 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 one of the biggest pieces. If he plays one year compared to two years, it has massive implications. I don't exactly know what that is. I'm not even going to try to figure it out, but it does. It's very similar to the Devontae Adams situation. We were in absolute dire straits. No way we're getting out of it. And then we move on from Devontae and suddenly it's, oh man, we're uh, actually in pretty good shape. And then it was, oh shoot, we're actually not because we re-signed all these guys. And then we have the um, all these other guys to sign and uh, now we're in trouble. And then suddenly we had a bunch of cap space again. Yeah, well, you just push the money out and blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't know, but again, the point is the numbers change. That's all That's all I'm saying. I don't think we are in good cap health. I'm not making that argument. I'm just speaking more broadly, not even just about the salary cap, but about a lot of things. We assume that everything that will be is what it is. Biggest need we're going to have, one of the biggest uh, issues we're going to have is pass rusher because we only have two guys. Well, we only have two guys now, but we're not playing football for quite a while. We'll see, and that also assumes guys guys don't get better, that guys like Kingsley uh, and Igbar are not going to be decent contributors. There are lots of assumptions, and, and we make assumptions in the positive that we shouldn't either, assuming certain guys that were good last year are going to be good next year that we, when we shouldn't, and I bang that drum all the time. Assuming health, 
right? If, if one guy goes down in certain situations, it changes the entire dynamic of, of what we know this team to be. Aaron Rodgers, Rashawn Gary, Alan Lazard even, Kenny Clark, Jair, Stokes, maybe Razul, because then the question opens up about the slot again, although we'll probably just slide somebody else in there. Amos, and again, or we could add somebody. We could end up adding a wide receiver, and it changes that dynamic. We could end up adding an edge rusher. What if we acquire a, a, a bigger, better tight end? I don't know. So again, I'm not arguing with the article at all. 28th sounds great to me. In fact, it's actually pretty solid considering we had the worst um, cap situation, I think, coming into the year. I think even worse than the Saints. And somehow we're 28th, so I'll take it. Sounds like improvement to me. But again, all I'm saying is when you read stuff like this, just understand this is this is what it is. This is a snapshot of what it is if we freeze time, but also assume everything plays out with no changes, which of course we can't. And, and the fact of the matter is the fact that we're 28th isn't just because we cleaned everything up, but it's because other teams have been making pretty rough decisions. Things change. We went from 32nd to 28th. Stuff happens. Let me just real quick read the blurb that was written by PFF, though. It says, Green Bay is a good example of a team that shouldn't really care where it ranks when it comes to salary cap health in 2022. The Packers have a 38-year-old quarterback in Aaron Rodgers who's coming off back-to-back MVP seasons in the only and only has one Lombardi trophy to show for all his Hall of Fame quarterback play. They continue to draft well year in and year out, as the newly minted highest-paid cornerback in the NFL, Jair Alexander, is the most recent example. Three straight seasons of 13 regular season wins couldn't uh, culminate in a Super Bowl appearance, but they'll run it back again in a weak NFC in 2022, despite the Devontae Adams loss. The credit card bill always comes due, and Rodgers could leave Green Bay with an absurd dead cap charge down the road, but they'll cross that bridge when they get to it. Basically, yeah. And, and again, my understanding from the cap people is that the sooner Rodgers leaves, the less of a cap hit there's going to be, and it doesn't sound like he's going to be playing beyond the third year when things would get unbearably large. But again, I, I don't know. I don't know what's coming. I don't know who's doing what. And again, I've been saying for years, because I know cap guys are getting mad at me now because I'm slight, slightly changing my tune in terms of just you don't always know, but I've, I've always said we need to start cleaning this up. We need to just start eating some of this so that we don't make things worse in the future. And they will, as soon as Aaron Rodgers leaves. And when he does, you're going to take a massive cap hit from Aaron Rodgers, and after that, the dust settles, and there's just a bunch of money sitting there. Which is going to be beneficial, because we're probably going to have to push a bunch of money out to squeeze through that Aaron Rodgers dead cap hit. But then we can afford it, etc., etc., moving on. Anyways, why don't we take a break right here. Uh, We'll come back and talk about some other Packers-related things. Don't forget to help out Drew and his seizure service dog. I am so, 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 so happy to see that we are almost there. Uh, Big, massive shout-out to Clayton for the the big giveaway that he's been doing. We are now at $7,050. Only $400 left to go for Drew to get his seizure service dog. It's it's absolutely incredible, and it just makes me so happy that... um, after all this time, we're, we're going to be able to help him out. This has been a long, long road, and I would just love to see this get closed out as soon as possible. Um, I mean, just in the last in the last day, $500 from Seth, $25 from Troy, $100 from Rosemary, $25 from Anthony, $50 from Justin. Um, day before that, $100 from Brian. I mean, it's just it's really, really incredible. Um to see all this so just thank you guys so much and i'm hopeful that um, who knows maybe by today um 
hopefully by the end of the week we'll be able to um, be able to get this done and, and get Drew his dog. So it's very good, and it's it's great to get some good news once in a while. So consider that. Otherwise, we will take a break, and uh, we'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So as you guys know, I like to do sort of a daily stat of the day. I haven't been super great at doing it every day, but I'm pretty close. Um, I was kind of prompted by an article I read that um, kind of got me an idea to look up a stat, so it'll kind of be a two-for-one here. But um, Brian Diardo of CBS NFL wrote an article ranking the NFL's best teams of the 21st century. 18-1 Patriots topped the list despite their Super Bowl loss. So obviously I had to comb through this, see if they put any Green Bay Packers uh, teams on here. They had, as it says, number one is the 18-0 2007 Patriots. And you got the 2001 Rams. 2016 Patriots are third. 2019 Chiefs are fourth. 2013 Seahawks are 5th, uh, 2009 Saints they have 6th, 2005 Steelers 7th, 2006 Colts 8th, and then the 2010 Packers they put at um, at ninth. So I want to read what they said and then kind of dig into a, a interesting little tidbit or a stat that I found based on what this article talks about. 
A couple of notes on the 2010 Packers Super Bowl. XLV champion won three rolled playoff games by a combined score of 90-51, to defeated the Steelers' top-ranked defense in the Super Bowl. Green Bay's 2011 squad that went 15-1 was considered here, but their Super Bowl-winning team was a much more balanced unit, which is a big reason why they finished the season with the Lombardi Trophy. The 2010 Packers lost six games, but each one was by single digits, and two of those defeats occurred in overtime. So that was kind of the thing that kind of got me springboarding into um, looking into it, because I don't, I didn't even remember that. They didn't lose any games by double digits, but, but we'll, we'll dig into that in a second. I want to continue this. After an 8-6 and six start, the Packers won their final six games that included playoff wins in Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Chicago. Aaron Rodgers, who played like a man possessed throughout Green Bay's playoff run, won Super Bowl MVP honors after carving the Steelers' formidable defense to the tune of 304 yards and three touchdowns. Despite the Hall of Fame defensive back Charles Woodson's injury, the Packers' defense was still able to come up with two of the game's biggest plays, Nick Collins' pick six and Clay Matthews' forced fumble that set up the game-winning score. First of all, any excuse to go back and look at the 2010 Packers is worth doing. But as I mentioned, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I realized that the defense was really, really good in 2010. I didn't realize that it was quite that good. And I understand that point differential also comes down to the offense. It's not just a defensive thing, but but the, the I guess the fact that the team was that good. So I went back and looked at the games. If you look at the point differential, I'm just going to read all 16 games. Point differential, by the way, is uh, how many points you scored minus how many points they scored. So point differential of one would mean you won by one. Point differential of negative one means you lost by one. The top game they beat Dallas 45 to 7. They had a 38 point point differential. 28 against the Giants, then 28, 27, 18, 9, 7, 7, 4, 2. Their losses, though, negative 3, negative 3, negative 3, negative 3, negative 4, negative 4. The worst losses they had was a 31 to 27 loss against New England and a 7 to 3 loss to Detroit. Those are the biggest losses they had all year. Four points. And so obviously I had to go back and see how many times in NFL history this has ever happened. And actually that's not exactly what I did because I couldn't find that, but how many games in a season did a team lose no more than four points? And if you're just looking at regular season, making it a little bit easier, um, it's only been done 16 times, nine times. So what I mean by that is teams played 16 games, never losing by more than four points, only nine times in NFL history. Now, again, there were years in which there were less games in the season, so it's possible they went through the entire season doing that, but they didn't get to 16. Does any of that make sense? Anyways, the nine teams are Washington did it twice in 83 and 89, San Francisco in 84, Chargers in 2006, Titans in 2000, Patriots in 2007, Vikings in 98, Packers in 2010. Now, interestingly enough, of those, the Packers were the worst, had the worst record. And as I mentioned in there, that we got off to a really, really um, bad start. But it's actually a little bit more interesting. I mean, it's, it's easy to only have a point differential of less than four games when you're, for example, the 98 Minnesota Vikings and go 15-1, and one, or, for example, the New England Patriots who go 16-0 and 0 because it's impossible to have a worse game than, than a four-point loss. So it's, it's pretty staggering that the Packers were able to do that while losing six games. And, and it just goes to show that the team is better than it its record indicates. And that's one of the benefits of point differential because the point differential would have been very, very high for the Packers. We saw that with some of the teams last year. I don't remember exactly who it was, but there were teams, I think the Patriots were one of them. There were a couple others where the record wasn't necessarily great, but the point differential was through the roof. 
because when they won, they won big, and when they lost, they lost small. So all these losses were very, very, very narrow losses that could have easily gone the other direction. So it was just an indication that the Packers are actually, despite being 10-6, and six, a very, very good football team. And interestingly enough, if you look at um, regular season and postseason, the only team that's ever played 20 games in a season without losing any games by more than four points is the Green Bay Packers. So that would have to be 16-game season and the wild card and throughout and winning the Super Bowl. New England did it in 2007 with uh, 19, 89 49ers, 84 Steelers, and 91 Redskins had 19 games. But the Packers are the only one to have 20 games in a season without losing a game by more than four points. Also, just in terms of NFL history, and obviously the Packers have played more games than most teams, but the Packers have um, the most games in NFL history at 796 games played in which they did not lose by four or more points. So score one for the Packers. Again, they just have more wins than everybody, but it's fine. I'll take it. Moving on and continuing with the theme of um, trying to use other people's articles as launching off points. Packers Wire, Zach Cruz wrote an article, Packers offensive lineman Royce Newman prepared to take a second-year leap. Now, obviously, when you read the article, it's one of those things that your first thought is, well, yeah, (laughs) as is everybody that's in their second year, hoping to take that second-year leap. But he does provide um, a couple little snippets and tidbits and whatnot, so I want to go over those and then kind of launch into the bigger question of who is it that's going to take the biggest second-year leap? Um, Mr. Cruz does provide a couple fun little quotes here. Aaron Rodgers talked about Royce Newman saying, Royce looks heavier. He might not look the same coming out of the shower to his girlfriend as he did last year. I feel like his belly got a little bigger, but that might make him a better right guard. So kind of picking on him a little bit, but the point is, I think Royce is kind of interesting because I don't think we think about him enough. I'm not sure why, and maybe I'm just projecting my own thoughts about Royce Newman, but I don't really notice a lot of other people being excited about Royce Newman, and I think it's kind of odd. First of all, everybody was really excited about Royce when we got him. I remember there was a ton of hype about, dude, Royce is going to be solid, he fits, blah, 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 you know, I think he's going to be, there was a lot of hype about the guy, but maybe it's just because his poor performance last year, I guess, but the point is, he played a lot, and not just necessarily out of necessity, they could have put somebody else in that spot, and I think it's very rare for the Packers to, I shouldn't say rare, but I think when the Packers rely on somebody, you should take that seriously. Same with John Runyon. You know, it felt like when John Runyon got put out there, it was just one of those things like it's just a necessity at this point. They're going to get rid of him as soon as they can. And he just didn't leave, right? Like Runyon's doing a good job. That's fine. But this isn't really a long-term solution. And it's becoming a long-term solution. And then you start to look at it and go, oh, I guess the Packers really like John Runyon. They put Royce out there. He wasn't out there every single time, every single snap, but he was out there a ton. And again, if the Packers are doing that, it generally comes with um, trust in, in his ability to understand and do the right things, which is a major step, which, you know, he also, he, he's learning more because he's get playing experience. He already has some mental and, and, and playability, but mental uh, awareness, I guess. He building, building trust with the coaches, with Aaron Rodgers, with his other offensive linemen. And so you take a guy that, was, that everybody was kind of hyped about, you look at the fact that he's been experienced, you look at the fact that he's going into his second year as far as understanding, and he's gone through a body transformation, making him a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier, which fits the role a little bit. You know, moving from tackle to guard, there's some changes that need to happen, one of which is you got to start eating donuts. 
Just saying. The other thing, though, is we, we drafted him relatively early. I mean, he was the fourth round, but, you know, we've drafted offensive linemen in the fourth round before that have been incredibly successful. We've drafted guys this year in, in that same range that we're extremely excited about. And then also you look at guys like TJ Slayton that, I mean, Packer fans are all excited about. He's going to be great. He's going to be all He was a fifth round pick, right? I mean, we treat TJ Slayton like he was a second round pick. We treat Royce Newman like he was a sixth round pick. There's just this assumption that TJ Slayton is going to be great. He's going to be this big, great run defender that also has pass rush ability and all this stuff. And I'm not trying to talk down to him. I'm just saying there's a weird thing with Royce where it just seems like we have a blind spot. Unlike Amari Rogers, unlike maybe even TJ Slayton and, and a lot of these other guys on the team, Royce played. And he played a lot. And he did it because the Packers like him and they like him in that spot. And it was one of those things where we keep looking at it going, dude, get him out of there. And they just wouldn't. Actually, did he play every single game? It looks like he did. That's that's crazy. I thought he I thought he missed a couple. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I mean, fourth-round offensive lineman that the Packers really, really like going into his second year. I, I think there's a really good reason to believe that this guy takes a big step. If you're going to bet on anybody, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. If we, if we just look at these guys, and I did ask this on Patreon, so I'll get to that, but if you just look at it... Um, Eric Stokes is a, a great option to look at as far as second-year leap, even though he was solid as a rookie. I think his ceiling is also very high, so that's an option. Josh Myers is also a very good option because, honestly, I mean, there was the injury there as well. And it's kind of an open-ended question. That was kind of the um, issue on Patreon is kind of, it depends what you mean or how you answer it or whatever. I, I just kind of left it open-ended. It's however you want to answer it. But, you know, if you kind of just disregard the injury and look at it in terms of his general production. I think where Josh Myers was compared to where he can be, there's a massive gap. Um, Amari is a fairly decent option. However, again, unlike Royce Newman, they didn't feel comfortable putting him on the field. That's the first step for everybody is comfort. Eric Stokes on the field, Josh Myers on the field, Royce Newman on the field, TJ Slayton a little bit on the field. Everybody else is kind of, eh, I don't know. So you got to get to that first step first. And so that's why for me, you're, you're looking at Stokes, Myers, Royce, and maybe TJ Slayton. Now, Amari still makes a ton of sense, but again, he just has that extra step. And now it's an even more crowded wide receiver room, and there's going to be pressure to push some of the other guys, especially Christian Watson out there, and, and you know, reports about uh, Dobbs are, are promising. Not that that means anything, but, you know, we'll have to see. On top of the fact that, again, Amari is largely a slot guy, and we still have Randall Cobb, so that creates some problems not that they're the exact same and not that you can't use Amari in other ways but it just it feels like the ability to use Amari on top of the likelihood that we're going to be using Amari seems a little bit lower but Royce is the one guy that that I don't think anybody's buying in on you know of the first five picks some people say Stokes, Myers, Amari and and TJ Slayton will be a popular answer but it just feels like there's a bit of a of a blind spot. And again, I, I think it was because of his performance. He was generally seen as a guy that was out there and nobody wanted him to be out there. Now, with that said, he did get better as the season went on. Um, his, his game in the playoffs was horrific, obviously, because that just has to happen. He had a 43 overall grade. Um, he, he only allowed one hurry, which I guess isn't the worst, but he, he just got beat up on against Detroit. Um, so I, I, I guess he didn't play in the playoffs. So he didn't play every game, but... All the way through week 18, he played, um, and against Detroit, he had a terrible game. But prior to that, 
He had a 65 against Minnesota, 73 against Cleveland, 70 against Baltimore, and 70 against Chicago. So it was a nice little run there, especially when you consider how he started, 55-55-44-44. And he had a 70 against Cincinnati and then back to 48-39. So it was a really, really, really rough start, but it kind of ended in the opposite. Um, you know, Obviously, again, Detroit game was pretty horrible, but 70-50-50-70-70-70-60 is a solid way to end the season. So... Um, Again, it's still a long shot, just like a lot of these guys are a long shot. You shouldn't assume anybody's going to take a big step, but I do think that there is sort of a Royce Newman blind spot, and I don't think he should be counted out. The fact that he's already got the job, and it's sort of his job to lose, and we're all just kind of assuming he's going to, right? We're kind of looking at it going, well, we've got we've got our left tackle. I mean, there's injuries, but we've got David Bakhtiari. We've got John Runyon at left guard. I'd love to upgrade him, but at least we've got him. we got Josh Myers at center. We've got Elton Jenkins eventually at right tackle. We just have this glaring need at right guard because we just don't have a guy. That's sort of the perception of all of us, including myself. I've said that on this podcast, but we do have a guy, and he played all year. And um, even though we don't like him, the Packers obviously did because they just kept him out there. And so, yes, there is competition, and I would absolutely love it if Sean Ryan got in there and was just a mauling right guard, or even Zach Tom, if he's able to to win a job, that's just phenomenal news. But again, I think it's going to be harder than a lot of us are assuming. Royce had that first year. He has the trust. He has the understanding of, of not only having gone through what Sean Ryan and Zach Tom are going through, but having an entire year of understanding and, and learning and developing that relationship with Aaron Rodgers, developing that relationship with the coaches, developing that relationship with the right tackle in the center. Granted, those people changed over time, but that's valuable. Anyways, looking at Patreon, the number one answer was actually Amari Rodgers, uh, 43%, followed by Josh Myers at 24%. Followed by Stokes at 14% and TJ Slayton at 14%. So again, it's it's the top. If you look at the top five, everybody gets picked, but Royce gets skipped, right? Nobody said Royce Newman. Um, there was actually, uh, I'm guessing, one vote, five percent, for Kylan Hill. So, um, not, and I'm not saying that's a bad option at all. It's just, I just, I find it interesting. And again, I'm I'm in the same boat. Like I look at it and I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, Royce Newman, don't care. But um, we shouldn't count him out. He He's, and this happens once in a while, he's that guy that we don't want out there, that they just keep putting out there, that they just keep trusting, and it just drives us nuts. Sometimes we end up being right. Sometimes the team ends up being right by putting their trust in them. But the bottom line is they're going to put the best guy out there, and right now that is Royce. Uh, JJ says, tricky question because some dudes didn't even play, so for them, even contributing at all is a huge jump percentage-wise, but I think Slayton actually takes someone's job this year, starting nose tackle in on a significant percentage of snaps, and if Reed, Lowry are cutting into each other's playing time, Slayton could be really uh, could be playing a really comparable role of snaps to them, really comparable number of snaps to them. I'll say third in snaps at defensive tackle, Kenny, Jerron, TJ, Dean, and Vontae. Wayne says, agree, it's a tricky question. I voted for Myers. He only played in six games last year. He'll play in all 17 this year. His PFF grade of 58 will be a 68 this year. There you go. That's awfully specific. And again, kind of answer it however you want. You know, playing time, PFF grade, doesn't matter. I, I, I didn't mean for it to be any one particular way. It's just in your mind, who's going to make the bigger impact, I guess, however it is you gauge that. Aaron says, for me, it is who will make the most notable leap, and the only logical choice is Amari. He's the only position that is wide open. Stokes and Myers are also options, but Stokes doesn't have as far of a leap to make. 
uh, to make it to the next step, and Myers is kind of dependent upon the four other guys on the offensive line. Amari has a wide op- open opportunity to prove everyone who has doubted him wrong. There are fans wanting him out after one season, so he has nowhere to go but up. However, there is also a possibility of Slayton, which if he takes a massive jump, I don't think the opposing teams are ready for this defensive line. It's scary already that Slayton is kind of an afterthought after he had a solid rookie campaign. So I agree with all that. The, the only thing I, I don't necessarily see is the last part where Slayton is an afterthought. I feel like fans are obsessed with TJ Slayton, overly obsessed with TJ Slayton. Always have been, right? From the from the moment we drafted him, it's just, I mean, I remember last year I kept getting crucified when I said, you know, hopefully he can someday be a good run defender, and that's it. That's the only goal I had for a fifth-round pick is hopefully he can start as a decent run defender. And it was like, you absolute monster. He's going to be a pass rusher. How dare you? It's like, okay, sorry. All right. And again, even now, it's like, dude, TJ, telling you, man, TJ. And even the uh, defensive line coach, I think, came out and made a comment similar to that. Uh, Jerry Montgomery, I think, had something to do with, I quoted it not very long ago, but it was something along the lines of just, you know, we're just trying to make him a good run defender or something. It's like, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Uh, finally, Drew says, Myers is going to beast it up for us, and we're going to need him to step up in the center if Bakhtiari and Jenkins are both out. So there you have it, folks. I, uh, I'm i going to leave it at that. I'm going to get up out of here. And again, I, you know, if I had to vote, I don't know exactly if I would vote, but I, I will say Josh Myers is is deserving of more of a thought than, than he's currently being given. But anyways, you guys have yourselves a fantastic Friday. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.